Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. So thank you all so much for coming out. My name is Jake Meter. I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. I edit a website called Mere Orthodoxy. Um, it's been, this is my first jubilee. It's actually my first time in um, Pennsylvania. So it's been really fun to be out here and just, I'm from the Great Plains. So we do not have, like, we have a ski lift in I or ski place in Iowa that advertises itself as Mount Crescent, and we all call it Bluff Crescent because um, it's kind of sad. And so being out here, just the landscape has been a lot of fun to see. Um, but thank you so much for coming out. Um, apologies for the people that were here that came to the thing I did yesterday because this first part will be a little bit repeat, but I wanted to frame both kind of sessions this way. Um, we're talking about Christianity and common life social witness in a very complicated moment and that's a complicated issue at any time but I think it's especially so now and so my, my hope for this our time together and hopefully if we have time at the end we can talk about it as well um, is that we would know how to ask better questions about our social witness a friend of mine studied with a Dominican monk in Spain and the, the monk would say to the group that um, things are never as difficult as they appear. They're much more so. Um, and so I've been thinking about that a lot lately um, and just the difficulty of being able to say true things about our public witness. And I um, was reminded, there's a, a story, Martin Luther, the German theologian preacher, he um, said that we, we often think that human beings interpret scripture and he said, there's a certain sense in which that's backwards, because um, scripture is light and people are dark. And so human beings need to be interpreted by scripture, is what Luther said. Um, and so there's this idea that as we um, walk with Christ, as we reflect on our life together, um, hopefully over time we kind of see the lights coming on more and we learn to ask better questions about what our life together should look like. Um, and so the, the thought that I had yesterday as I was looking at all of this, I'm like, imagine you're at a, a campsite, you're going camping somewhere, and you get there at dark and you look around and you're seeing true things when you're there. That river you see is really there. That mountain is really there. Um, but you're seeing it in the dark. And hopefully, as the sun rises, as the sun gets up in the sky, you're seeing everything better. Um, and now you're able to see, oh, I didn't see that mountain. I really want to go up there. I want to get a closer look at those trees. And so I hope that as we mature in our um, lives as Christians and our thinking about the world, um, think like the way we think about the world, that is a chance to love God with our minds. It's a chance to love neighbor. And as we mature in those ways, I hope that we see more things to explore and ask questions about. So that's kind of maybe a framing to talk about this. Um, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll just dive in and hopefully have time for questions afterwards. Um, so again, thank you all for coming. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jubilee. We thank you for the people that are here, um, for the desire to love you and serve you and serve our neighbors in every area of life. Uh, we thank you for all of the staff with CCO that have made this happen, many of whom are kind of invisible within the conference. So we thank you for their work and their willingness to do work that is kind of invisible to make these things happen. 
I ask that you would be with us now, that you'd be honored in our conversation and in our thoughts, and that we would leave here um, better equipped to love you within the life of our various communities that we're part of. Um, Amen. So when I was in elementary school, my best friends and I would go to a church camp every summer. It's a pretty typical church camp in the Midwest. Um, Big, lots of land, wooded areas, paths, primitive cabins with bunk beds. Had some other things they'd built more recently, like we had a climbing tower that we got to play on, and they had a um, blob out on the lake, kind of a big bag of air you can jump on and launch people dangerously high with. Um, One of my friends, I remember when we were first grade, he was out on the blob, and you were only supposed to blob somebody that was like 20 pounds lighter than you. But the kid's dad was up on the platform and saw his son out on the platform and, like, shoves everyone out of the way and runs out and launches him into the air. Um, The best part of the camp, though, when I was there was we had this cargo net. And so it was hung between trees, and then there was a big beam in the middle that held it up. So you kind of climbed in, fell into the net, and then you could climb up to the top. And when you're, like, a third or fourth grade boy and you climb up into the middle of the cargo net, you're surveying your kingdom in these woods. And so... The best year with the net was my best friend's cousin came to the camp. And it was the best year because Drew was insane. And so we would do these wrestling matches, kind of like Royal Rumble, like trying to throw people out of the cargo net. And Drew got thrown out and fell a good ways. And we were kind of worried he was hurt. And he was still for a second. And then he gets up and we're all like, are you okay? And he looks at us and he like bellows loudly and runs to a tree, strips his shirt off, snaps a branch off the tree, and is charging the net, ready to attack the first person um, that tries to stop him. So I mean, kind of like if you've seen Oh Brother Where Art Thou, John Goodman's Bible salesman breaking off the branch, kind of that thing. Um, somehow no unplanned hospital visits from that. Don't know how. The unplanned hospital visit came later in the day because we decided to play dodgeball with disc golf frisbees, which are heavy, dense frisbees used for frisbee golf. And one of my friends got hit in the head and had to go to the hospital. Um, Came back that night with this eye patch on, and you could see stitches above his eye. Um, Somehow that was the only hospital visit we had that year. I don't know how we pulled it it off. Um, But that that was our camp. And so as I was thinking about how to frame this, I I remembered that experience, and it sounds a little bit like the kind of G-rated Lord of the Flies, in a sense, Um, which, if you're not familiar with it, it's now by William Golding, and he describes what happens when a group of young boys get stranded on an island together, and the outcome's disastrous. It's violent, it's brutal, it's ugly, a bunch of people die, and it just, they revert to this kind of barbarism almost immediately. Um... And so for Golding, this novel is kind of a morality tale about the violent nature of human beings and what happens um, if you really put human beings in this testing environment and expose what we really are, which is violent and backbiting and treacherous, um, only concerned with our own life and protecting ourselves. Um, And what I want to argue today is that that novel has a very large and negative influence on how we think about life together and society. And we'll talk a little bit about politics, but I'm mostly going to talk about just society and kind of social life together. Um, 
And we'll see more about that in a minute. But so the lesson that Golding wants us to learn from the book is that humanity in its most natural state, this is what you get. Um, it's kind of the Tennyson has the line, nature red in tooth and claw. It's kind of the same idea. Um, and so because humans are these traitorous monsters prone to violence, um, the only way that we can prevent this full-scale social breakdown is kind of organizing society in ways to disincentivize it, because that's what we would do if we didn't have it. So you might have an all-powerful state that hits you in the head with a brick if you violate the law, or you have a, a market that kind of ironically turns self-interest to a good end um, to hold society together. And I think this is the, the thinking behind a lot of our thinking about society and politics today is we can't really hope for realizing love in our social life, in our politics. And so the best thing we can do is try to organize structures that make it harder for us to destroy each other. Um, and what I want to argue is that that's just not how human beings actually are. That's not our nature as people made in the image of God. Um, Humanity's natural state is not conflict that we hold in abeyance with various social innovations and techniques um, to help us survive rather than destroy each other. Um, our primordial state is peace because humans belong to a natural order whose primordial state is peace. Um, this is so because our world is the product of the creative intention of the God who is perfect peace and love. Um, God himself the term that theologians have used for this is simple. And what they mean when they say God is simple, they don't mean some kind of like minimalist, doesn't have lots of fancy, like that's not the, that's not the meaning of simplicity when we talk about it in theology. We mean that God's not composed of parts. He's wholly one. Um, his being and his attributes are the same. And so we, we you don't want to think of God, this is something that's important. Um, a lot of the time when we talk about God, um, God is creator, God as he relates to humanity. Um, God is kind of this like superpowered person, um, almost as if like shout man really loudly and you get God. Um, and so you can pick this up if you read like the Odyssey or the Iliad, like the, the, some of the Greek gods are these very petty, vindictive, look kind of like people. They just have particular powers. Um, or even if you're a Good Place fan, um, think about the judge in The Good Place. Like, she's the judge of all the universe and can do whatever she wants. And in her free time, she likes watching Justified because she thinks Timothy Oliphant is hot. And that's just the way that The Good Place imagines these supernatural beings. Um, that's not the way that Christianity conceives of God. Um, we conceive of God, the, another way we could talk about it is self-subsisting being. So he's not contingent in the way that we are. Um, and because he's simple, he's not made up of parts, we can say his being and his attributes um, are the same in a sense. So it, there's almost a sense in which you would not want to say that God acts in loving ways, but that God himself is love. Because um, that's just in his being as God. And so um, there's a sense in which being made in God's ima image, we we can mimic this simplicity in that um, we are made for one thing, to glorify and enjoy God, and in that we exist in a world made to do one thing, to glorify God. So God is simple because he's not composed of parts, and the creation is simple because it's designed to do this one thing. Um, and just as the creator is peaceable, so too is his creation. Um, there's a, a centrality that follows from this to in gratitude 
in how we think about society and how we think about our lives with other people. Or it's just reading, um, if you read Romans 1 and also in Ephesians, this theme of being grateful is so central to how Paul talks about the Christian life. Um, there's a novelist I like who near the end of one of his books, um, he says, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Um, I am not altogether capable of so much, but those are the right instructions. Um, that's just a good framing for some of this. Now, some of you, you're probably already thinking about this, so we'll, we'll get there. This order that we live in is marred by sin. And so the curse of sin touches the ground, Genesis 3 tells us. Um, we now have weeds. Um, it also touches humanity itself. And Paul talks about how creation groans in Romans 8. And we ourselves have been bent and twisted by sin. Um, and so even things that could honor God, our finiteness, our contingency, our ignorance, um, that can honor him by showing his completeness and his fullness set next to us, um, those also become twisted by sin and cause us to do things to our fellow human and to ourselves, to the planet that are wrong, that don't agree with God's natural design. Um, and yet the thing I want to say here is that while that's true, um, I want to follow the lead of Herman Bovink, who's a Dutch Reformed theologian, and he wrote in his Reformed Dogmatics, grace restores nature and takes it to its highest pinnacle, but it doesn't add to it any new and heterogeneous constituents. And so what he means is that um, what God's grace does is it restores the natural order to what it's supposed to be. Um, almost to what Eden would have been if it had been allowed to continue existing as God made it. Um, and so when we're talking about how sin perverts things, we're not talking about sin so thoroughly destroying the order that God's made that we can never hope to access it again. We can never hope to participate in it. And we're just kind of here biding, to, holding time until God comes back and we can escape. That's not the picture um, that I think we should have of how we live in the world and how God's order manifests itself in the world. And I think we can still see this in small ways. So take the, the natural family, for example. It's still the natural family after the fall. Um, and I would say that by the same reasoning, the basic purpose of society remains the same, which is to love and honor God by praising him and participating in this peaceful order that he's made. Um, as with the family, our societies find this much harder to do because of sin. But the makeup of the family, the trajectory of the family is still the same, just so with society. And this is actually a very common view in Protestantism um, across time. This is how a Lutheran named Niels Hemmingsen, he's a protege of um, Melanchthon who studied with Luther. This is how Hemmingsen says it. And just, I'm going to read a few of these older quotes and contrast the way they're talking about social life with the way we think about it today. Um, the preface here, you're going to hear them use the word political life or politics. They don't mean like public service or politics proper. They just mean the various types of communities and societies we all belong to as people. But here's Hemmingson. The end of political life is a calm and peaceful state of polities through political actions, all of which ought to be referred to this, that a just harmony of political order be maintained with proportionate justice preserved among people and that God be established in human society as the ultimate end of human society. Um, but just imagine, in their minds, the most natural thing that politics ought to do is promote a calm and peaceful life. 
Um, and then this is how Althusius, who's a reformed guy in the six, or 17th century, 1600s, writes about it. He says, the final cause of politics is the enjoyment of a comfortable, useful, and happy life and of the common welfare. Um, and that concord and peace may always and everywhere thrive. So imagine bringing those assumptions about your life in a neighborhood, on campus, in church, if you're in public service, in a public service, how that shifts the way you see a lot of what you're doing. Um, so the final cause of our social life, our life together, according to these guys, it's not merely to hold inevitable conflicts in abeyance, keep them away, and try to preserve some small kind of privatized happiness. Um, they see it as to create a society in which the enjoyment of a comfortable, useful, and happy life is made more plausible, um, all so that God may be praised and honored. Um, the, the way that the medieval theologians sometimes talked about this is they talked about protecting the business of the peace and the faith, and they saw these things as interwoven. Um, so let's go back now to Golding, this kind of natural state of violence and tension and backbiting and looking out for number one. Um, I want to argue that you can see that it's unnatural by just looking at Golding's own story. Um, so think about this. Golding wants to make a point about human nature. So what does he do? He takes a bunch of young boys and strands them on a desert island. There's nothing natural about that. Um, it's just this thought experiment that he hacks together to make his point. But it's, if anything, you could argue that it actually tells us what happens when we're cut off from our natural way of living. Um, so the, the way that, again, these older Christian thinkers talk about it is they argue that nature reproduces itself. Um, the way Hemingson puts it is he says, nature seeks those things that preserve nature, and it rejects those things that are hostile to nature. Um, so think about this. Anytime you go outside, you see this, or you can see it somewhere. You see trees shedding their leaves in the fall and reproducing in the spring. You see fruits falling to the ground and producing um, more trees from their seeds. You see animals giving birth. You see it in seasons, um, this cycle of birth, death, renewal. It's a liturgy of creational abundance. It's written into the world we live in, and you can walk outside and see it. Um, so for something to be natural in any meaningful sense, I think it ought to be able to preserve itself, which means being able to reproduce itself. And a group of young boys stranded on a desert island can't do that. Um, nor, for that matter, can the individual, isolated, autonomous human being, um, that buffered compartment of desire and ambition and will that so many of us kind of think of as the natural state of human beings. Um, the most natural form of human life, particularly Althusius talks about this, is the family. Father and mother united in the marital embrace and reproducing icons of their love in the world in the form of children. And it's true that families can be violent as readily as Golding's young boys, but no one calls the violence of parent against child or spouse against spouse natural. We actually recognize that there's something uniquely horrifying about such violence because it it's a violation of this most natural bond that exists. And when that's violated, we're horrified, rightly. Um, and so that's the setup I want to have for this, is that our natural state is peace, and it's because we exist in a world that has a discernible order to it that we see in the seasons and that we see in plants and animals. Um, it includes life and death, flowering and decaying, um, and that this nature is even inherently relational. Um, people, animals, even most plants, can't reproduce themselves entirely on their own. 
um, if we're to survive in the world, if we're to be remembered, um, we unite ourselves to each other. And not just in families, but we unite in friendships, in neighborhoods, in churches, in um, all kinds of communities. Um, and so we, we live in an order that responds to that kind of peaceableness because it's the necessary condition for us to live well together. Um, and likewise, it responds well to affection, careful attentiveness, kindly use is the um, phrase that Wendell Berry will use a lot. He's got, um, Byron has a lot of his books down at the book table. Um, it responds well to those things. And the world responds badly when it's put under an attentionless, mindless force. And you can see that in humans. You can see it in the land. Think about what we have done to American farmland in the 50 years, 75 years now since the war. We plow all of it in the same way. We're inattentive to the shape of the land, to the needs of the soil, and the result is we're eroding our soil. Um, the world and the created things in it respond well to affection and attentiveness, and they respond badly to force, mindless force just put on them. So now the question is, if the natural state of human beings is to be at peace with each other, where does that leave us socially? Um, the uncomfortable answer, I think, is that it leaves us needing to dramatically rethink a lot of the basic assumptions we bring into common life with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with people we live with on campus. Um, and even in politics particularly, I'll, I'll look at that a little bit right now. If peace is natural, then the, the way that our politics work is often very disordered. Um, so why is that? There's a um, Dutch Reformed theologian named William Groen van Prinsterer who's really helpful here. And he says that we live in this revolutionary state. And what he means by that is we've rejected that given order. So we've rejected this idea that God gives us an order that we live in and we participate in. We've rejected that. And what we've replaced it with is essentially human society via um, collective assertion. So a group of people get together and they say we're going to form a government and now if they have the power to do that, we have a government. Um, rather than the vision that Paul has in Romans where he talks about God creating the government to do certain things in the life of a community. Um, and so the way Grun summarizes the view concisely is that um, the traditional view, he says, is that states, governments, are not of man's making but of divine institution, inseparable from the nature and needs of fallen mankind. Um, so that's the traditional view, Grun says. And what's happened instead is that since the 18th century or so, um, we've replaced that view with this idea that government is basically whatever we say it is. Um, and if you have the power to make it happen, then you can do it. Um, and so what Grun says is, the question then becomes, okay, so if anybody can make a government, if you have the power to do it, what shapes that government? What tells you where are we going as a society if it's not participating in this given order that God's made? Um, and Grun says what we've resolved as an answer to that is that we use our reason to define what kind of society we want to create. But it's a very particular sort of reason. Um, one of the things that can happen in these things is it can look like Christians are against reason. And that's not the case. Um, but Christians see reason existing within God's order, and we use it to discern the world as he's made it. Um, and for Grun, according to Grun, these later thinkers are trying to use reason detached from that givenness of the world. Um, 
and then everything kind of falls apart as a result. So here's how Grun summarizes it. Tearing ourselves loose from the solid ground of unchangeable principles, men began to soar without support in the airy spaces of speculation. The upshot was untold misery. A golden age was expected, an age of iron arrived. Energy wrongly directed is the more disastrous as it is the more powerful. So that quote, think about our tech, think about the powerful things we can do today and now apply that principle there. Energy wrongly directed is the more disastrous as it is the more powerful. Um, in one of the CPJ panels yesterday, one of the speakers likened politics to a knife, and you can do lots of things with a knife. You can cut with a knife, you can carve with a knife, you can stab with a knife. Um, that's true, but then as you get something that becomes more and more powerful, that energy wrongly directed is so much more dangerous. Um, and so the, the thing that's interesting is that a lot of these earlier thinkers kind of see these problems coming. Um, the way Grun describes it, he says, so when you have that assumption about how politics work, we all just are asserting things and trying, maybe sincerely, maybe not, to get justify them via reason. Um, there's no possibility of harmony in a society like that. So here's what he says. There simply could be no concord or harmony in the revolutionary state since respect for each other's rights had become impossible. Um, each side, he's talking about government and citizens, um, in turn systematically overstepped its rights, thereby annulling the rights of others. Government and people each aspired to total submission and unrestricted supremacy. The unrest and constant tension rendered collisions unavoidable. The theory could not and but antagonize king and subject, government and citizen, you could say. The subject seeing in the king a potential tyrant and the king seeing in the subject a potential rebel. Um, and so I want to argue this is why, this is kind of one of the foundational reasons that we have this polarization problem right now, is that we've unhooked our politics from the natural order of creation, and now we don't know where they're supposed to go, we don't know what the point of society is, um, and when you really work down to these things, we, we don't know what those things are because we don't know where people belong, um, what people are. And so what we're left with is this constant striving and debating and a, a vision of politics that reduces our life down to Golding's boys on the island, this highly dangerous bout between irreconcilable power claims. Um, and you can see this in the way that a lot of our pol political debates happen right now. Um, you probably will see it a lot in the next 10 months as we move closer to the election. Um, so then what do we... How do we respond to this? I think the, to start, we have to reject these packages that are given to us by both parties. And because we're working from Christian assumptions about the world we live in and about the human person and about our nature as human beings, that we're essentially social and political and made to live at peace with each other, um, we have to reject these packages and try to propose a still better way. And that's desperately needed right now is the thing. Um, so much of our political debate's not really touching a lot of the defining problems of our life together in this country. Um, there was just a piece that um, Annie Lowry had in The Atlantic recently about the affordability crisis in many American cities where it's become very hard for families to start get started and grow because Childcare is expensive, healthcare is expensive, housing's expensive, and you can't build families in a world like that very easily. Um, rural America, my part of the country, is emptying out. Um, 
many American, even cities, are being left behind as more and more wealth and talent flows to these smaller or to a smaller number of major cities and hubs. Um, climate change poses a serious threat to our republic, and the rising generation. Um, often the ones who have been most exposed to all of these things are carrying the heaviest burdens. Um, there was a piece that was devastating to me to read. I'm, so I'm 32, so I'm millennial generation. But then um, this journalist named Benoit Denizé Lewis did a piece on Zoomers a couple years ago for The Times looking at anxiety and various mental health issues in the rising generation. And a lot of the colleges that he spoke with said they did not have the staffing and the facilities to provide for all the needs they had. I actually I did a research project just recently for a, a Christian group that's building campus profiles of elite American schools, and I did one on an elite West Coast school. Um, you would immediately know it if I told you which one it was. And I talked to someone who graduated from there a couple years ago, and he said about a third of the student body is in the counseling center weekly. And over half of the students there are in there regularly. And he said most of the students would say that's their community that they can talk to when they have some struggle they're trying to deal with. Um, they go to the counseling center because they don't have anyone. Um, and because we have camped out on all of these kind of policy-level debates that are divorced from some of these issues, these problems are going untouched, I think. Um, there's people wanting to address it, to be sure. I don't want to undersell what people are doing. But um, there's this kind of performative drama that we do in the media and in speeches and in lots of institutions that is, in my view, very divorced from these kind of problems. Um, and so what I want to argue is that what matters most in understanding contemporary America is not what divides our two parties, but what unifies them. And I think what unites them is this belief that a just society is basically one where people are left alone because our most basic state is the individual. Um, and because of our fears about our violent nature, we don't want to talk about love's place in politics or care, the place of care in our politics. Um, because who besides the individual can say how that individual should live their life? Um, and so conservatives and liberals secure these things through very different ways, but I think a lot of times it cashes out in both directions to a kind of leave-me-alone society. And this leaves people in the place of a lot of these students that Lewis was talking to for the Times, I think. Um, so how, how do we confront all of this? Um, I'll wrap up here, and then we should have time for a good amount of time for conversation. So if you live in an assumed state of peace... I think you live in a way where you're at home in the world and you can discern an order in it and seek to align your own life, work, and desires to that order. Um, a very easy way to talk about this, although you could do it elsewhere, is farming. Um, if you have a piece of land that you're trying to farm, you can see how the land is laid out, you can see what the needs of the land are, and you can align the way you work to the needs of that place. Um, you see it actually, it's it's really fun. So like in Lincoln, because it's all flat, it's Great Plains, you, it's like the whole city is basically a grid because you can just build things where you want because it's all flat. But when you're in Pittsburgh, you can't do that because you have to align the way you built the city, the way the city works to the mountains and the rivers and all of these different things. Like I even noticed coming into town, there's roads that have um, 
signs over them that show if you can go that way on the road because sometimes it'll be like three lanes one way and one lane the other way and they'll change it up. Well, that's because they can only widen the road so much because Pittsburgh. Um, And so they've had to design their city in ways that agree with the land. And I would say that's a very simple tactile example of what I'm talking about is you, you observe the way that people work, you observe the way that the land is made, and you try to align the way you live with that so that you're working with it rather than against it. Um, and the thing that's hard for us, I think especially for us moderns, is that that is going to obstruct our personal and communal ambitions at points. Um, and when that happens, the right response is to try to align ourselves to reality rather than to try to drive over the top of it. And so that's one of the questions that I think we, we can reflect on is what are the things that you allow yourself to be obstructed by? What are the things that you will stop for or go around rather than running over? Um, very kind of trivial, small example, like a squirrel runs in front of your car. Do you drive around it or do you run over it because it had it coming? Um, but there's more serious ways that you can take this as well. Um, what are the things that we will allow to obstruct personal, individual freedom in our society. Um, There's a writer for National Review, Michael Brennan Doherty, who talked about this um, in an interview with Ezra Klein. So um, Doherty's dad is from Ireland and came over to the U.S., met an Irish-American woman. They were in a relationship together, had a son, Michael, and then his dad decided he didn't want to stay here, and he flew off to Ireland and restarted his life in Ireland. And so Doherty has this really striking memoir about his childhood and his relationship to his father. Um, But the point he made in talking to Klein is he said, you know, when my dad decided to break off the relationship and go back to Ireland, he didn't have a lot of consequences for that. He could go back to Ireland and basically resume his life as before. And there might be some kind of social judgment for people that know what he did, but a lot of people won't even know because his girlfriends in America. Um, And so he can go about his life and do all of the things we love to do, and there's no consequence for the fact that he abandoned this woman. He abandoned this child. Nothing really happens um, other than maybe some judgment and an expectation that he sends a check in the mail sometimes. But even that may or may not happen. Um, now suppose, Doherty continued, he said, now, now let's say that my mother decided to have the same attitude toward the bank that she had formed a relationship with to buy our house. Um, she would not get off that easily. She would lose her home, her credit score would suffer, um, and that would translate into all other areas of life. She would have a very hard time getting a credit card. She would have a very hard time maybe getting an auto loan to buy a car. Um, because we've decided that that contract with the bank to buy the house is something we value enough to say, sorry, you reneged on the deal, so your individual freedom later in life is affected. We do that with the bank. We do that with the contract. We don't do it with the guy who leaves the girl with the baby. Um, and so Doherty argued that, that that point about the contracts is the key. So in, in the late modern West, we think that the only thing that can obstruct us is something that we make a prior choice to accept as an obstruction. And so um, the, the signed contract with the bank is the signal that, well, you chose to take this burden on yourself, and if you renege on the deal, there's consequences. 
And so the contract has that force. Um, the fact that Doherty's mother and father were united together as one flesh and that they gave birth to a child doesn't have the same force. And there's something really disturbing about that, I think. Doherty, that was Doherty's argument. I tend to agree with him. Um, and so that, that's just a question to think on. What are the things that should obstruct our individual expressions of freedom? What are the things that we think should obstruct society's ability to build a new building or to pass a new, like, what are the things that we come to them and we say, okay, we got to stop. We can't violate that. Um, and so I think this, this is the question before us in this world that is autonomized, that is so individualistic, that is so defined by this baseline belief that human beings are just violent um, and nothing more. Um, can we again discover the well-worn trail of creaturely affection that can lead us home? Um, that's one of the things that came out in Dennis A. Lewis's piece especially, is just the absence of roots for a lot of these students he was meeting. Um, so there's a really beautiful scene of what home should look like, and I'll, I'll stop here, and then we can hopefully have time for conversation. Um, near the end of the film, Antoine Fisher, the film's protagonist, who's played by Derek Luke, um, finally succeeds in making contact with his birth family. And he's the son of a father who died before he was born, and his mom was incarcerated shortly after giving birth. And so he's raised by this foster family that abuses him physically, verbally, and even sexually. Um, and in hopes of escaping all of that, he joins the Navy, and yet his past catches up with him, and he, he can't control his emotions, and he acts out frequently, violently, which is a common thing with abuse victims. Um, and he's formally reprimanded, and his officer requires him to go see a counselor after a particularly violent outburst. And so the counselor's played by Denzel Washington, and through this relationship, they, Fisher begins to heal, and so near the end of the film, he decides he wants to find his family. And so in one of the final scenes, he comes to visit the home of one of his aunts he had just met, thinking he was just seeing, meeting his aunt and his uncle. Um, but he walks into the house, and it's bursting with relatives. Um, and they're all greeting him by name and telling them how they're related to him. I'm your mom's cousin. I'm your uncle. Um, your, all these different relatives that he'd never known he had before, welcoming him by name and happy to see him. Um, and then he comes to a door in the back of the house and two young boys open it and inside there's this table laid out with a huge feast and behind the table there's this elderly woman sitting there that we find out is his grandmother and he sits down with her and she holds his face in her hands you can almost kind of picture in her mind she's kind of trying to see her own child in Antoine's face and then at the end she smiles at him and says welcome um, I think to, to come home and for Fisher, it's his biological family, but I think there are other types of homes that we can make in a time of orphan orphanhood, as we have now. Um, to find that it's home indeed is a desire that I think many of us know. Um, and I think one of the reasons that choice has come to occupy such a central place for us is because we think the only way that we can escape this sense of isolation is to create something that can be home that we enact through various types of choosing. Um, it's often not possible for us to enter into it as a given thing. Um, 
And yet, to return to that single house, as Fisher does, and this small group of people, and to be known and to be loved, I think is only part of the desire. The longing for home goes beyond this mere longing for domesticity, but it's not less than that. Um, but ultimately, and, and I think the filmmakers, I don't know this for sure, but certainly they, the way they set up the scene has lots of resonances with Revelation. Um, as you come into the New Jerusalem, and it's overflowing with people, and there's a feast. Um, and so I think ultimately that is, in a sense, what we're longing for. As Sheldon Vonnegut in his book of Severe Mercy, he says that heaven itself, he thought, would be, must be a coming home. So we're made as creatures living in a world that we did not make. We've been given. Um, the tragedy of our day is that I think this world has grown strange to us, ugly and even hostile in a lot of cases. And so I want to argue if we're to recover a good life together with our neighbors, it will be through a shared work of recovering the givenness of the world and finding that it's not strange. Um, it is good, familiar, and whole. It is worth giving our attention to, and it is worth loving. So thank you.